This is episode 218 of the Stem Cell Podcast, commercializing stem cell-based technologies with Dr. Amritha Jaishankar. Hey, everybody. We are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. It's only one month until the 2022 ISSCR annual meeting, which is taking place in San Francisco, and we cannot be more excited if you're attending the meeting, keep an eye out for the Stem Cell Podcast booth on the exhibitor floor, where you can learn how you could be featured on an upcoming episode of the podcast. We'll also be hosting a very special meet and greet event at the Meetup Hub on Friday, June 17th at 11 a.m. We really can't wait to meet all you guys and get back out there in person. Today, we have Dr. Amrita Jaishankar. She'll also be there at the ISSCR, by the way. We'll get to that in the interview. She's from the Maryland Stem Cell Research Fund here on the podcast to talk about her role as executive director and her work developing collaborative research programs and promoting the commercialization of stem cell based technologies. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news that's coming right up. But first, stem cell is hiring. Stem cell technologies is a world leader in developing services and tools for scientists working in cell biology regenerative medicine, immunology, cancer, and disease research. United by a foundation of scientific integrity and driven by a mission to advance science globally, Stem Cell is a team of scientists helping scientists. They're looking for creative, driven people to join their international team. It's more, more than 100 current offerings in areas such as R&D, sales, business operations, quality, and science communication, all at jobs.stemcell.com. We're going to start things off today with the paper that's coming from my PhD advisor, actually, Dr. Joseph Wu at Stanford, um, and some familiar, folks, familiar faces to those of us who have actually listened to the podcast, um, uh, long-time listeners, I suppose, a uh, mix of folks. You know, recently, we actually had Dr. Nazish Syed, who is an endothelial biologist, also at Stanford. He's on this, um, on this particular paper. A couple of other folks who I've worked with in the past. First author, Thomas Way, Dillip Thomas, a few other cardiac folks and long-term folks in the Joe Wood lab at Stanford. This is a cell paper and it's a very unique paper, I would say. The title of the paper is Cannabinoid Receptor 1 Antagonist Genstein Attenuates Marijuana-Induced Vascular Inflammation. And anytime we're going to talk about marijuana, you know there's going to be a a lot of press that this, this is something like this is going to generate. And we were actually talking before the show about this. Um, anytime you're linking marijuana or anything to cardiovascular uh, disease, you're going to get a lot of kickback, certainly from folks here in California, no doubt, but other folks around the, the country as well. But I think it's a, it's a good paper that's establishing a connection between uh, cardiovascular disease and uh marijuana. And this is, you know, epidemiological studies have demonstrated this. It's not just this particular paper, but this is the thing about this paper. It's taking a deeper dive into that mechanism, that connection between cardiovascular disease and, and marijuana. And so there's this, you know, tetrahydrocannabinol or THC that's commonly known, which is the psychoactive component of marijuana. It actually binds to this cannabinoid receptor, CB1 or CNR1 in, in the vasculature. And that's implicated as the mechanism as to how uh, that connection happens between marijuana and cardiovascular disease. There's also some confounding factors here in this particular paper. I mean, if somebody is 
take marijuana, then chances are also higher that they may also smoke tobacco and other <laughs> forms of smoking too, right? And so could that also uh, play a role? Sure. I mean, it's, I, you know, it's <laughs> going into the semantics here, but that is a limitation of this particular study and other studies like it connecting marijuana to, to cardiovascular disease. So going back to the, the THC, the tetrahydrocannabinol, right? It's the psychoactive component of marijuana. Um, and what they did here was they did a, a UK biobank analysis and found that cannabis was actually a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. For those of you who don't know, the UK biobank is absolutely a tremendous data set. 500,000 plus people who have uh, all sorts of analyses, all sorts of tissue samples, all sorts of data out there that's um, accessible to the, the public. You know, I think it's it's one of a kind. I think there are other data sets that are striving to be like the UK Biobank, but in my opinion, no one's quite gotten there yet. Okay, so they they did this analysis from the UK Biobank showing that cannabis is indeed a risk factor for cardiovascular disease through um, various genetic analyses, I believe. And they actually saw that also marijuana smoking can activate inflammatory cytokines that are implicated in CBD. So that's the connection, the activation of inflammation and inflammatory cytokines. And then they did a very Chowu approach and did some in vitro virtual, uh, in silico virtual silico, uh, screening and identified this compound genistein, which is a soybean isoflavone, uh, and it serves as an antagonist for CB1, okay? So the thought here is the genistein can be an antagonist for, um, for CB1 receptor, so it's uh, going to prevent that negative cardiovascular impact of THC, okay? THC could still have that effect on the, the neurological function in the brain, but it's going to prevent that off-target cardiovascular impact. That's the hope of this, this genistein. And the reason that this is a stem cell paper is that the, the Wu lab utilized human iPSC-derived ECs, endothelial cells, to actually model THC-induced inflammation and oxidative stress through NF-kappa B signaling. Um, they did a knockdown of the CB1 receptor using siRNA and CRISPR-I. Um, and importantly, this genistein compound that they identified through their in silico screening attenuated the effects of, of THC on the cardiovascular system. Then, of course, if, if you want to I guess a cell paper, you got to take it to the mouse system, right? And so they generated a mouse model uh, where the genistein actually blocked THC-induced endothelial dysfunction, confirming what they saw in vitro in the iPS-derived DCs, okay? The mice had a reduced cardio uh, atherosclerotic plaque. They had minimal penetration of the central nervous system, which is actually the important thing, right? So the once again, the THC can have an impact on the CNS and the brain, but this genistein compound can prevent the off-target cardiovascular effects uh, of, of THC. So in essence, I'm sure this is going to be getting a lot of press, perhaps going towards some kind of clinical trial uh, for this genistein compound, because it's a CB1 antagonist that can actually attenuate the effect of THC and perhaps THC-induced atherosclerosis. So I think it's a, it's a cool study because you're going from an existing data set in the UK biobank, identifying this connection to marijuana and cardiovascular disease, which has been established in some, in some capacity. Um, but this is really taking a mechanistic dive into one, how that impact is uh, affecting the endothelial cells and using iPS-derived DCs to model that, and then bringing that into an in vivo system 
to confirm this compound that, you've, that they found in genistein can actually have this protective effect on the cardiovascular system. And, you know, this is like, I'm biased. Sure. I mean, Joe was my, my lab mentor. He was my PhD advisor, but uh, I still think he's one of the best guys when it comes to anything endothelial, anything cardiac biology and modeling them with iPSCs and these big time studies going from, from basic mechanism to translational compound is it's something that really can only be done in, in a few labs, I think around the world. And Joe's lab is one of them. Certainly. Number one, I'd say, um, not least of which, cause it created you Arun. Uh, but you know, of all the things that were promised when we were lobbying, not me, the, the California people there were lobbying the public to get them to approve prop 71 for CIRM, you know, spinal cord injury, diabetes, getting high without the cardiovascular disease risk. I don't know how high that was on the list, but clearly, uh, Joe Wu, he went way down the list and, and met that uh, need. But in all seriousness, I think this is a, it's an important, uh, it's an important piece here showing the, the real, the great breadth of, of type modeling that you can do using the system. And let's be honest, I mean, it's everyone's smoking weed in California, all over the United States nowadays with the legalization. So I think anything we can do to mitigate any kind of associated risks there is important my only question here because you, you said it there's so many things and to get into cell you got to go model it in a human cell type and then move that into mouse it seems like super comprehensive um but the 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 real thing that made this a stem cell paper here in terms of the ips derived ecs i, I would say that i wouldn't say that's the weakest point but that is the just someone who, who's had a lot of experience and frustration with iPS-derived endothelial cells myself, I think there's a lot of question as to whether or not those approximate the true EC and the diversity of endothelial cells. And specifically, you know, we're talking about the heart, you know, you want to kind of get, get an idea of the vessels that are subject to these increased atherosclerotic uh, effects. So uh, I, I'm very impressed with this paper. It totally deserves to get where it is, but um, I, I still have a few questions about the, those ECs because that's, that's really at the pith of it, I think, um, those ECs, as ECs are central to everything. <laughs> that they are, but uh, he'll be the first one to tell you, Joe will be the first one to tell you that you know this is not a perfect model, anything IPS-derived EC and cardiomyocytes to a lot of extent, even though we've made a lot of progress in, in inducing their maturation, they say it in the limitations of the study, IPS-ECs are immature, they have low ENOS expression or a mixture of arterial venous and then lymphatic ECs, right? That's something they didn't specifically do here was the uh, the lineage-specific differentiation of the ECs. But to get around that, they use primary cells, right? They use primary ECs, and most importantly, they use their mouse model. I think to be able to show a phenotype in an iPS-derived EC is one thing, but to be able to confirm it across multiple model systems, I think that's the real power here. The other thing is a lot of the data here, a lot of the upstream data is in silico, right? It's either the UK biobank study where that data is freely accessible. I mean, anybody can work with that data and also the in silico identification of the genistein compound. So it's it's not just the, the basic science and the, the wet lab work that was really awesome here, but also I think the, the stuff that's free in a lot of ways that anybody can do like the UK biobank data um, 
you know, I, I think the, the combination of those two, two things made this a, a really great study. Yeah, and Silico is such a rich resource there for discovery and, uh, you know, moving forward, it's only getting better. So I, I expect to see a lot of these compounds being identified and tested and, uh, you know, getting the mice high without giving them a heart attack. Moving up from mice heart <laughs> to fish heart, you know, one heart to another. Uh, we got another big study. This is focused on regeneration, you know, fish famously highly regenerative, but um, zebrafish, generally fish probably, but zebrafish in particular. And uh, regeneration, when you think about it, it, people usually think about the local response, right? There's this injury and then a recruitment of immune cells to the wound. Um, and along the border zone of that wound, you get a, a regenerative environment that usually involves a lot of cell proliferation and differentiation and then integration of those cells into the remnants, right? Into the, the pre-existing tissue and our scaffold and then restoration of function to whatever degree, right? Uh, that's, that's what we think of, but for the most part. But, um, you know, organisms, fish, all of us uh, organisms were interconnected except the unicellular, although they're pretty complex in their own right, but organisms, are, are a bunch of organs, right? Or a bag of organs, organ systems and tissues. Um, and when you get injury to one organ, of course you can have a distal effect or effect globally across the whole body. Great example of that is everybody knows is heart failure, right? The heart starts to fail, you get a elevation of uh, the venous pressure in the kidney. Then you get this tubular hypertrophy and uh, fibrinogenesis, fib fibrogenesis in the kidney, ultimately leaving to this further venous congestion and then this vicious cycle um, and, and vice versa as well, right? If you get chronic injury or injury or chronic uh, kidney disease, you can get uh, some kidney dysfunction, electro electrolyte disruption, uh, and that can ultimately lead to cardiac dysfunction, right? So there's this interplay between the organs, but it's also more subtle and complex than that. You know, there's these circulating factors that have been illuminated by these parabiosis studies that can modulate uh, regeneration on a global scale. That's a really great target uh, for clinical application. But here, uh, Ken Poss, uh, a friend of the show, he's been on and uh, a professor at one of the most esteemed universities in the entire world. Go Duke. Yes, sir. Uh, he explores a really novel regenerative mechanism by looking at long-range tissue interactions during regeneration by assessing, here's the, here's the trick here. It takes Ken Poss to go so far afield. He's looking at brain transcriptomes in the context of cardiac injury in the fish. Um, and I mean, you know, not really intuitive, uh, but what he found, and this is really exciting, is that there's this transcription factor gene called uh, CEP, CEBPD, which is upregulated not just in the epicardium, but also remotely in the brain and the ependymal cells, as well as in the kidney tubular cells. Uh, and while you, you mutate CEBPD, um, you get uh, an effect in all those compartments, right? You get uh, uh, altered cycling of the epicardial cells, but you also get this kind of disrupted fluid regulation, um, which is mediated by hormone response in the brain, sending a message to the kidney. So you also get this disrupted fluid regulation 
in those distal organs, right? Um, with knockout of CBPD. But here's the exciting thing is when you look at the epigenetic regulation of the, that transcription factor using this genome-wide profiling, they identify that there's this enhancer that they call CEN, C-E-N, uh, for CEBPD enhancer region or something like that. Um, and what they found, which is dope, is that if you delete this enhancer region alone, um, you get abolished CBPD uh, expression in the remote tissues and the associated phenotype, the disrupted fluid regulation, but you get no effect in the epicardium, no effect on expression or the response. Um, so that, I mean, I think this is like, for me, it's like a, a nice, uh, I love, I always trumpet these conceptual advances. And I think this is one of them, um, a, a demonstration clearly with you know, great science and a, a really accessible model uh, showing <clears throat> that there's this uh, whole animal management of tissue regeneration uh, in which you have these in injury responsive enhancer elements that can be in, in, in different tissues and those enhancer elements in the different tissues define whether or not there'll be a short or long, long range uh, response to injury. And I, I think this really opens the door towards, towards looking at uh, the, the relationship specifically, I think, in the hematopoietic compartment, where you have these influences uh, that affect, you know, by definition, because it's hematopoiesis, affect the system globally, but you wonder about what associated uh, influence they may have on a very specific or organ level. So I think this is really going to kick open the door to a whole field of study, and that's why I love it as a conceptual advance. Yeah, I think this is really great. It's a Beautiful basic science study coming from the POST lab at the one and only Duke University, go Blue Devils. Um, yeah, I think the connection between different organ types and different tissue types, as you alluded to, is something that we've talked a bit here on the show. Uh, the hematopoietic example that you brought up is something that also came to mind. We've had different situations, different papers that we covered where hematopoiesis is really critically regulating other the formation of other tissue types and the function of other tissue types in the bodily body as well. So that is a connection. Um, this is looking between the brain and the heart. I did the first thing I wanted to see for this particular paper was whether this particular element, the element, this genetic element, this, you know, CEN or whatever you call it, is it, is it conserved, right? Is it conserved in higher mammals? And in fact, I was disappointed to see that uh, deep in the paper, supplemental data set 7C, extended data 7C, they showed that there's high conservation of the CEN in genomes of the fugu and the carp, but not in the xenopus, the mouse, or the human genome. Yeah. So that was a bit of a bummer to me. Uh, it would have been so cool in, in my mind if we were able to show that this is actually conserved in higher animals as well. But that in itself is a really cool finding, and perhaps that suggests one element of the, the zebrafish's amazing regenerative capacity and its you know ability to, to regulate its regeneration across multiple organs. So a little bit of a bummer to me, you know, not seeing that conservation of that element, but hey, zebrafish is zebrafish, right? Agree. And that's, I mean, look at you going deep in it, but I, I, I think as you alluded to that, it really underscores the the unique capacity in these fish to, to undergo regeneration 
and you wonder, I mean, while, while these things aren't present um, in higher uh, mammals, at least, uh, you wonder if you can kind of recapitulate that influence and, and uh, bestow or endow a, a mouse model, let's say, with that type of expression pattern and just see what it does, you know, see how it maybe modulates that global effect. I'm not saying that it's going to allow mice to repair their heart if you, if you, you know, shoot a little scent in their, in their genome or recapitulate the influence. But I think it, it's an interesting, again, an interesting uh, field of study to look at what are the differences epigenetically uh, between fish and other regenerative animals versus mice and mammals and higher. Uh, and maybe that's fertile ground for mechanisms that, that mediate that regenerative process. So another kind of backdoor to understanding how, how these amazing uh, regenerative processes are able to, to uh, work, how they work uh, mechanistically. Don't hate on the zebrafish, as we always say here on the show. It's one of the greatest model systems that we have for studying regeneration, which is a major subfield in the field of stem cell biology, sure. And if we're staying on the topic of looking at multiple organs interacting with each other, we can move into a, an artificial system of, of studying that in the multi-organ chip. And this is a paper in Nature Biomedical Engineering uh, coming from the lab of Gordana Vorniak Novakovic, the one and only from Columbia University, uh, a real world leader and an icon in the field of tissue engineering. Uh, they've been working on these multi-organ chips for a really long time now. And the first author here is actually somebody who is also a friend of the show and a friend of mine as well, Casey Ronaldson Bouchard, a fellow cardiac biologist and a cardiac tissue engineer extraordinaire who has been really uh, instrumental in establishing some of these multi-organ chip models and also uh, has a beautiful paper that we talked about with her when she was on the show where she was able to mature the uh, iPS cardiomyocytes in a, in a paste format, basically just by pacing these cells repeatedly, they were able to enhance the maturation of cardiomyocytes to a level that I had never seen before. Um, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because that particular model her early from her earlier nature paper, I believe, was actually integrated into this multi-organ chip, which is wild and also kind of a reflection of the complexity of this particular chip, which we'll get into, right? So we know for a fact that engineered tissues can model human pathophysiology in a lot of different ways. And ultimately the hope of some of these tissue engineered constructs and these multi-organ chips is perhaps to test the efficacy and the safety of drugs in a way that you may not be able to do in a standard 2D culture. Um, so in this model system, they integrated multiple different tissue types and cell types. They had, a, of course, the cardiac system that I've mentioned from, from Casey's work. They had a liver system, they had a skin system, and they had a bone system. And these were all connected through a pseudo vasculature. So this is a, a multi-tissue chip system in which these matured, important matured human heart, liver, bone, and skin tissue niches, all derived from IPS, by the way, are linked by a recirculating vascular flow to hopefully better recapitulate that organ-organ or system-system interaction that we were just talking about in the context of the zebrafish, for example, right? Um, so each tissue is actually grown in its own optimized environment. I want you to get a feel for the complexity of this particular work and the amount of effort it took to generate something like this, okay? So first of all, each tissue is grown in its own specific media, okay? 
Then the tissue is separated from the common vascular flow by a selectively permeable endothelial barrier. So there's an endothelial barrier that's sort of like in the body is blocking that organ from the vasculature. Okay. Then these interlinked tissues that were connected by this pseudovasculature, just like a tube basically, are maintaining their overall structural and functional phenotypes over the course of four weeks in culture. That in itself, I think, is a really big accomplishment to be able to maintain the integrity and the maturation of these four complex tissue types plus the endothelial cells over the course of a month. That's, that's pretty astounding to me. Um, I've been trying to do some of this stuff with just two tissue types and endothelial cells and cardiomyocytes in like a simple chip. And that's hard enough as it is to, to maintain for like a month in culture in a lot of ways, but to do four, actually five, if you count the ECs is, is pretty astounding. And then after looking at the, the maturation of the tissues, they utilize this organ chip for pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic profiling of doxorubicin or one of the major cancer drugs out there that's known to cause a lot of damage to the heart and the other organs of the body. They threw some doxorubicin into this chip and saw its impact on the different tissues. Um, it was uh, the cool thing. And I guess one of the advantages of growing the, the tissues in this particular format was that there were some early MR microRNA biomarkers of cardiotoxicity that were actually identified in this system that were not able to be identified in a 2D format. So that's one advantage of growing the cells in this complex system. They also predicted, um, increased the predictive value of these clinically observed microRNA responses relative to the tissues in isolation. Um, and uh, also noted some of the advantages of using that endothelial barrier. There are uh, different advantages to using this chip. I think there was also an example of where the bone the bone specifically, the function of the bone was improved by growing it in the context of this multi-tissue chip as opposed to an isolated fashion. So it's the maturation phenotype, it's the cell-cell interaction part of it, it's the disease modeling and the cardiotoxicity modeling of it that really demonstrates why something like this, this complex chip could be advantageous for, for, for studying all these different phenomenon. Now, <laughs> all that being said, and I'm not I'm not poo-pooing the work at all. I'm not poo-pooing the work, Casey, if you're listening. I, the thing that we got to talk about is just the reproducibility of the system, right? I'm not doubting that this is an amazing system to use, but if you want to commercialize it, you're talking about five different independent cell types, a, a complex vasculature a, 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 that's all connecting these things, in addition to the multiple specific media types that these cells are being grown in, right? Four different types of media for growing four different types of cells. So I think that's, and this is something that I'm sure they're thinking about. I'm sure they've thought about how to best simplify all this for commercialization. Because if that's the ultimate goal is to use these things for disease modeling, drug screening, all the good stuff, they have to be accessible and they have to be cheap and they have to be um, easily implemented by pharma and other folks hoping to use them. So I'd love to have Casey on the show down the road again to see how they're addressing some of these greater issues. She's also a business person on the side, by the way, one of the founders of Taro, uh, Tara Biosystems, one of their uh, cardiac bioengineering companies. Um, I'd love to have Casey on the show to talk a little bit more about this particular technology and how they're working to, to commercialize it. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing feat uh, and super impressive, maybe 
a bit cumbersome. Maybe each one of these chips costs about a million dollars and like 10,000 person hours. But uh, it doesn't even matter, in my view. I mean, the findings are kind of ancillary, incidental. It's like, you know, going to the moon. You don't go to moon to the moon for the cheese, Arun. You go to the moon for all the tech it takes <laughs> to get you there. And this chip, I mean, the amount of things for, over the decade, probably, that it took to get this done, the amount of tech that they developed and the, the insight and the experimental mastery, that is is really i think not the exclusive value of this paper but that when you talk about the culmination being this chip i think the culmination is really all the tech that that gets spun out of this and probably a, a lot of it being rolled into the the science of doing a tarot and i i think if you can do this much think about how you could deconstruct it and do a little bit less to great effect so i think this is such an amazing foundational piece of work they may never make another chip like this just because it's just not worth it. But I think that the, what, they, what we've gained from them doing it is, is priceless. Yeah, I think what you're alluding to, the conceptual advance here is really stunning. All right, this is something that the tissue engineering and organ chip biology field has been working towards for a very, very long time. Not just these organs on chip, but body on chip approaches. Okay, and this is, I think one of the closest examples that we've gotten to, to getting there. I think there are other groups out there like Don Ingber, for example, who are doing similar stuff. They're, instead of growing multiple organs on a single chip, they have multiple chips, multiple like heart chips and brain chips and all that, and then are just connecting those chips separately. So like a single chip would be representing a different organ, all right, as opposed to here where it's like you have a single chip with multiple organs on it. I think there's a bunch of different ways to, to approach this goal, but that's really what the, the field has, this field has been striving for is to develop these body on chip systems. But as we're talking about, it's not easy to do. And um, you know, kudos to, to Casey and all of her colleagues. Also Daniel Tavakal, so I should mention one of the trainees on, uh, on the show recently, he was on this paper. Um, this is a labor of love and it takes a lot of love and a lot of effort to, to stick with this for 10 years. And this is the, this is the byproduct. Yeah, really. I mean, just look at the schematics here and you'll start sweating. Um, but you know, we talk about body on a chip, super complicated, takes a universe to put it together, but then, you know, there's the contrary, the single cell, the most powerful cell in the body, arguably, I always argue, the hematopoietic stem cell, you know, just one, just one is enough for some people. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of questions about how they're regulated. That's the great mystery of hematopoietic stem cells that makes it such a challenge. Uh, and part of the, the problem with hematopoietic stem cells is their potency. They ultimately lead to a lot of malignancy in advanced age. And, you know, part of that is, is uh, due to inflammation and hyperactivation of the hematopoietic stem cell pool and the accumulation of these clonal mutations. But ultimately, it comes down to exhaustion, right? You know, the bone marrow, it, it becomes more inflammatory during aging and that inflammatory, those inflammatory factors, they promote activation of hematopoietic stem cells and ultimately chronic inflammation causes depletion, exhaustion. Um, but uh, hematopoietic stem cells are mostly 
quiescent, right? And in fact, contrary to expectations, they increase in number. Uh, with age, at least in, in most mouse strains. And so all that together suggests that there's like a, a mechanism that protects hematopoietic stem cells from the chronic inflammatory process. Uh, and an obvious candidate for this is adiponectin. Maybe not obvious to everyone out there, but obvious because it's a circulating factor that suppresses inflammation, uh, specifically by limiting the activation of macrophages, natural killer cells, T cells, uh, and reducing their production of inflammatory factors like interferon gamma, tumor necrosis factor, right? Now, ad adiponectin deficiency has no effect on hematopoietic stem cells in the steady state. Uh, but when you take, you know, that's mice in these clean rooms, right? But as soon as you expose them to bacteria, they have a bacterial infection, uh, adiponectin it promotes hematopoietic progenitor proliferation, again, by suppressing uh, TNF expression. So the, the question, there's, there's some insight, there's a link, right? Adiponectin and, and hematopoietic stem cell cycling, it's well-established, it's a great candidate for what might be uh, mitigating this chronic inflammation, but it hasn't been established. Uh, the question remains, how are hematopoietic stem cells protected from inflammation with increased age? Uh, so enter uh, Sean Morrison, and he's able to do this study because adiponectin has two receptors, adipo R1, adipo R2, and there's, you know, to get the, the tissue-specific expression, you got to have all the mice. Sean Morrison has all the mice. He's the mouse king overlord, has every single mouse you can imagine in the hematopoietic compartment. So he's able to do this study, and what he, what he did is he showed that Adiponectin really was critical in, in this process, um, but it acts in this non-cell autonomous fashion is what they, they showed their group, uh, UT Southwestern, um, uh, that it acts non-cell autonomously to promote uh, hematopoietic stem cell quiescence and self-renewal. Specifically, the non-cell autonomous part is that it is uh, expressed on these inflammatory uh, cells and the uh, uh, Adipo R1 and 2, in response to adiponectin, it suppresses the cytokine expression. So the TNF and the interferon gamma is suppressed. When you get rid of the adiponectin receptors, you get chronic activation of HSCs and exhaustion, depletion as they age. And this is a, a accelerated by in bacterial infection. Um, so that's it. I mean, this isn't like a bombshell, not going to change the world. It's probably something that a lot of people have inferred. But as I said, uh, Dr. Morrison and his group there, they have all the mice to prove it. Uh, and they show, make a clear demonstration that adiponectin is a critical mediator uh, of resisting uh, exhaustion of the hematopoietic stem cell pool downstream of inflammation. It's important because adiponectin the pathway is a target in the context of diabetes and insulin resistance. So that's something that, that is being widely investigated. So you really wanna understand how modulating that pathway can influence hematopoiesis. In this case, it seems like it'd be a good thing um, that you would have the additional ancillary effect of protecting the hematopoietic stem cell pool from exhaustion using these adipo agonists, as they call them. So what do you think, Arun? Yeah, I think the point that you made at the end there, I think is an important one. The 
the importance of adiponectin and, and regulating obesity and all the, you know, all the, that particular subset of pathologies is, is well noted. And it's cool to see the connection here uh, to the hematopoietic system. Like you said, the Morrison lab has all the mice and that enables them to do this kind of work. The mouse overlord, as you call them, I like that. I don't know if he would like that though. Um, zebrafish, of course, is the uh, the realm of Ken Poss and he's the zebrafish overlord and Gordana is the chip overlord, I guess. So all different types of overlords here. What's Wu, but, Arun? The Wu-Tang? Wu's, <laughs> Wu-Tang clan, exactly. He's the this IPS overlord, I guess. I mean, actually, that that is true. They have a huge, huge IPS biobank. He actually is the IPS overlord, especially when it comes to like IPSCs from different cardiovascular patients. So all about the, uh, the IPSCs and the overlords here. But yes, this is a uh, great study coming from the Morrison lab. Great basic science study. One thing that I thought was a little amusing was here at the, the end of the paper where they mentioned that the environment of these mice, the environment in which the mice are placed is, is, is really critically important to, to regulating this phenotype and, to, and, and demonstrating this phenotype. Because they say it's also possible that these phenotypes of increased HSC division or impaired HSC function uh, would be observed in these adiponectin deficient mice if these mice were aged or housed in conventional colonies that are not pathogen free. Okay, so standard mice are pretty nasty, right? So they have all sorts of pathogens. And so that's uh, definitely a caveat for this particular study. Yeah. Like many of these studies with mice, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's one of those things where it's like, oh, we got to do everything over again, but you know, hematopoiesis in, in your environment are critically linked, especially when it comes to bacterial or pathogen infection. So yeah, these clean rooms don't exactly model the real world, but I think it gets at uh, uh, probably something that we've guessed at and 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 understood to probably be the case, but uh, it took uh, the Morrison lab to really hammer it home. So yeah, that's it. Roundups over the Overlord Roundup here, presented by the Underlords at the Stem Cell Podcast. We're about to talk to you know the executive Overlord at MSCRF in a second, but before we get to that, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. As research using pluripotent stem cells advances toward the clinic, there is a renewed focus on cell quality. Visit www.stemcell.com slash cell quality to explore ways to assess your human pluripotent stem cells and to learn about essential quality attributes to consider for gene editing, disease modeling, and maintenance. All right, everybody, welcome back for the interview portion of this episode of the podcast. Today, we have the honor of welcoming Dr. Amrita Jayshankar, who is the Executive Director of the Maryland Stem Cell Research Fund, or MSCRF, which has invested over $170 million in identifying, supporting, and accelerating cutting-edge research, innovation, clinical trials, and commercialization of human stem cell-based technologies in Maryland. Amrita is a scientist by training who has devoted her career to developing cures for debilitating and life-threatening conditions of our time, and to advancing this field through various roles in federal, university, and industry settings. Since 2016, she has led an accelerating cures initiative at MSCRF and has helped create a vibrant and growing stem cell community in this region. She's been recognized for her leadership in life sciences and her contributions to the community through numerous awards. Amrita serves on a number of advisory boards and committees in the region. 
Dr. Jay Shankar, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. Let's start things off a little broad with a little bit of an overview of the Maryland Stem Cell Research Fund. I think a lot of our, well, some of our listeners might not be familiar with the tremendous stem cell research and translational progress that's actually happening in the state of Maryland, uh, in large part thanks to the efforts of the MSCRF, right? And so as the executive director and as somebody who's actually risen through the ranks of the organization in the last few years, why don't you give our listeners some greater insights into the MSCRF's mission goals and overall impact? Absolutely. Um, thank you. We, so we were established uh, by the governor and the Maryland General Assembly through the Maryland Stem Cell Research Act of 2006 during the um, 2006 General Assembly session. And really our purpose is to promote state-funded stem cell research and cures through grants. And right, we've been doing it now for over 15 years. Um, so it's been it's been a great journey. So essentially, we're a state-funded initiative, and our goal is to accelerate stem cell research, commercialization, and cures. Um, as was mentioned, we've invested now over 175 million in over 530 projects through six different programs to achieve this. So I would say our focus is really on identifying and fostering cutting-edge research and innovation in the field of regenerative medicine in Maryland. And our six different programs are broadly focused around what does it take to move a regenerative medicine discovery from the lab where the invention occurred to the clinic where it can reach patients. Discovery supports faculty that are coming up with these high-risk, high-reward ideas. Validation supports faculty that are sort of ironing out the kinks uh, before they can figure out whether the research can be commercialized or have a clinical outcome. And um, the, start, the commercialization funding supports startups as well as established companies developing a new stem cell product. And the clinical trial program um, supports a clinical trial site in Maryland, irrespective of where the company might be located in, in the US. Um, and the fellowship training programs are the ones that are designed to help create those next generation of leaders. And the launch that we just put in um, is bringing these new to the field faculty or you know, faculty from orthogonal areas of expertise into our field so we can address those emerging problems. So yeah, that's the, that's the sort of broad mission with, with how we design the programs. And, and, you know, and I think that it's also useful because we've, you know, we've, we've reshaped them already in a couple of years since I've started. We've kind of redone all of these programs. So it's, it's, it's always interesting chatting with, you know, folks that are in the field to identify what are those next critical gaps and make sure we're addressing them. So it's, it's fun. You're also no stranger to the podcast. Uh, you're a guest uh, on the podcast for our ISSCR Los Angeles kind of on-site interview session that we did when we were in the meeting in 2019. Wow, three years ago now. Uh, do you think the intervening three years and, you know, notably this pandemic that just uh, is now hopefully circling the drain, um, do you think that those three years have, have really changed the landscape, uh, both for the MSCRF and also just globally in stem cells? Yeah, it's been a really exciting time, hasn't it? I mean, it, it seems like we just 
met a few years ago but at the same time it seems like so long ago this COVID's kind of just made you lost track of lose track of time in a way um, but I think you know both for us and the industry overall it's just been a phenomenal few years um, and you know here we are in 2022 you know we're, we're seeing these therapies actually in patients you know we're beginning to see some of the success of CAR-T we're beginning to see these in vivo gene editing therapies. Um, you know, we're, we're having over 2000 clinical trials now for even more prevalent diseases, right? Like Parkinson's, diabetes, macular degeneration. Um, and again, every year we seem to beat the previous year's record now of how much investment has been made in the field. I think it's about 22 billion this year. Um, so overall, I think the industry, it's, it's just been one of tremendous growth. And in some ways, I think with, with the COVID-19 pandemic, there's just been an unprecedented access and ability to collaborate. And so it's been no different for us here at MSCRF. Uh, we've, we've been able to build a very strong community that's kept moving forward and made progress through, through the pandemic as well. Uh, you know, we've added um, each year somewhere between 20 and 30 new awards to our portfolio, pandemic or not. Um, our companies have been hugely successful, you know, raising between six and 40 million in follow on funding. We've had a couple IPOs um, and and tremendous success as well with our faculty and clinical trials. So overall, it's it's been it's been a great few years um, and happy to say that for the Next fiscal year, we're at a 20.5 million budget, which is about the highest we've had in a while. So it's it's been good news all around for us. Yeah, it's really a whole new world. And I think part of, you know, we've talked about this before, part of the, I guess, silver lining of the pandemic has been how the biomedical research community has shifted their focus and really, you know, uh, helped to bring cures and vaccines and all these amazing new things to the market and to people and that have actually been able to, to help with the in the pandemic in a lot of situations and specifically with the stem cell field we've talked a lot about um you know various stem cell models in vitro models that have been able to examine how the mechanisms of SARS-CoV-2 are actually impacting the body a lot of papers that we've covered on the podcast over the last couple of years have really focused on that. So it's been really cool to see how the, the scientific community, the stem cell community has shifted their focus to kind of combat the, the pandemic. Speaking of the ICCR, you know, we're very excited to be actually attending the upcoming ICCR meeting in San Francisco in person. I mean, it's a hybrid meeting, but we'll, we'll be there in person. Um, and you're actually going to be giving a focus session, participating in a focus session called Accelerating Cures, Translating Stem Cell Discoveries into Therapies. So if you could, could you give us a little overview of what you're most excited about at the ICCR and perhaps a little bit more about this particular session? Yes, absolutely. ISSCR always, you know, has a fond place in my heart. I've been I've been in the stem cell space now for over 18 years um, and have attended this meeting several times, you know, from when I was a student to over the years actually collaborating with and sharing the stage with several of my colleagues here. It's it's been it's always been a great event. So we're we're really excited to be be at the ISSCR annual meeting this time. We have a um, 
we have a focus session, both um, you, you can find us virtual as well as in person. So I believe it's June 15th um, at 8.30 in the morning. So please do join us. Um, we, you're, you can hear about everything really. So the, the thing about MSCRF is we, we support such a broad range of research and technologies all the way from early stage discovery through startup companies and commercialization, validation of these technologies, all the way through clinical trials, as well as you know, fellowship programs to support those next generation of leaders. So you get a little bit of a taste of what we do in the six hours of content that we are bringing to ISSCR this year. Uh, you hear everything from you know, muscular skeletal regeneration, neurological therapies. In fact, you, you will hear about some of the disease models that are now being used to study COVID-19, like you were just mentioning. Um, we also have, you know, we're discussing corneal endothelial cells as an alternative to donor tissue, um, 3D printing strategies for stem cells and complex engineered tissues. You'll also hear from the group that um, was behind the first pig to human cardiac xenotransplantation efforts to talk about how we got here. Um, and then we have a whole company panel on, you know, discussing pathways to translation and commercialization. So you'll hear from some of the companies that we've helped create as well as support here in the region. Um, and so overall, you know, you, you get a bit of everything. So we're, we're really looking forward to, to this session. Yes, uh, myself as well. I'm sure I can speak for a room. We'll be there. Uh, so going back to the MSCRF, or still on the MSCRF, I guess, one of the key missions there is to accelerate the commercialization of stem cell technology. And you guys have had really great success, as, you, as you've described. Um, and I don't know, as, as a scientist, I think, I, I don't want to speak for all scientists, but I would say venture maybe that scientists get stuck on like the technical problem. Like how do we, how do we overcome this technical issue in order to gain insight into the biology and then apply that insight towards some practical clinical endpoint, let's say. Um, but what we don't really recognize is that once you've reached that goal, then there's a whole other race, a marathon really, I guess, to try and get that actually into people. Um, and, and maybe, you know, there's less insight into that. So I was wondering if you could share, you know, you kind of glanced over all the things that you're doing, but could you go into a little bit more like granular detail? H how do you accelerate the commercialization of stem cell technologies? Like what are the, what are the major obstacles that you have to overcome in that space? Is it regulatory? Is it kind of like team building? How does the MSCRF uh, have a unique approach to this that's led to such success? Absolutely. Um, so we have six programs. So the, you know, and they're broadly, you know, let, let me go into a little bit of detail. So they're, they're called discovery, launch, validation, commercialization, clinical, and postdoctoral fellowships, right? So as, 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 as I said before, um, it's broadly modeled around how do you move a discovery from the bench to the bedside, right? So, so largely, I say this falls under three pillars, right? We foster research and innovation through our university-based programs. We build great companies um, and help them grow here through our validation, commercialization, and clinical programs. 
And thirdly, we really serve as the connective tissue for our region, right? So it's a little bit of everything that you said. So with the with the first pillar, you know, we're we're involved really early. Um, we support these high risk, high reward ideas. I think that this is really key. We're identifying that next big question, making sure we're addressing the key gaps. Um, and you know, we're getting in early, helping shape the research and build the team. And then through our um, second pillar, we really create, uh, we create value through milestone-based programs. So we're helping de-risk the technology. Uh, we're helping those companies get follow-on funds because of being able to de-risk these technologies. Um, and really here, our focus is on advancing the science and cures. And I think the third pillar is so important too, because building an ecosystem has been really key to our success, right? And no, no single person can do this alone. So to, to your point, it's everything. There's regulatory hurdles, there's, you know, there's, there's manufacturing hurdles. We're, we're inventing at every step in this field. Um, and you know, there's, there's no exciting, there's not, there's not a more exciting place to be, but there's also not a more challenging place to be. Um, and so we're, we're really focused on creating those connections, serving as a resource and helping people really address their unique challenges. Um, and I think this, to your point also, this does start really early, you know? So one of the programs that we just recently launched um, is, is actually the launch program. So the, the point here was to bring new faculty or bring these orthogonal technologies and ideas into the space, right? So as, as we are growing, we, we have some of these growing pains um, that, that requires this orthogonal expertise to solve. So, you know, we have, we, we have a engineers, protein biochemists, you know, computational biologists, all of them sort of coming into the field to solve what we identify as these critical gaps. Um, and in the same way, as we built um, and created these companies, they're also part of our growing ecosystem and are actively involved with the university-based faculty, helping sort of minimize that academic and commercial uh, gap. And so I think that we've really been successful because we've been able to build a very strong community um, here in Maryland. Um, and also, you know, globally, you, you'll see us at various um, events around the country and we're there to make sure that our faculty and companies have the resources that they need to move this faster. Yeah, I, I really liked your point on training and how that's an important part of developing the ecosystem that you're talking about. Actually, a, a brief note, one of my mentors, Dr. Paul Burridge, who's actually now a PI at Northwestern, he was a Maryland Stem Cell Foundation postdoctoral fellow, and he's one of the greatest scientists that I know, also a guest podcast, by the way. Um, so, you know, it's it's a great way to set up this ecosystem and training is an integral part of that. I actually wanted to step back a moment in time and actually talk a little bit more about the origins of the MSCRF and in particular, why Maryland is such a great place to develop this ecosystem that we're talking about. I'm here in California in LA and the origins of CIRM are of course, no secret to me. Uh, you know, Back in the mid 2000s, the state of California took a stand for stem cell research and established this huge war chest in response to some of the federal restrictions around out there. And similarly, like you're talking about, the MSCRF was created by the Maryland State Legislature and the governor through that Stem Cell Research Act of 2006. So kind of tell us a bit more about that moment in time and specifically why Maryland? So what is it about the state of Maryland 
that makes it such a special place for doing stem cell research. I mean, we know about the amazing medical institutions there. You talked about the University of Maryland and how they're involved with the recent xenotransplantation work. And of course, Johns Hopkins is no stranger to anybody. But, you know, talk a little bit more about the origins and also why Maryland has been such a, a power player in stem cell research. Absolutely. Um, I think I think that you know the origins are very similar um, to to what you described in California. We were created around the same time, and I honestly think it was quite a visionary investment, right? That that's really paid off. I think in the fifteen years that we existed, we've really been able to show Maryland how they've done well while doing good. Um, and you know, there's 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 been a need to support. Uh, basic science that will create the next medical breakthroughs and and to your point around the same time as there were federal restrictions in place. Um, and I think why Maryland because there is there are fantastic universities here. We also have fantastic federal labs. Um, and I think Maryland is also you know Hopkins and University of Maryland they they we get a lot of money for federal research and I think I, I, federal money for research. and I think the the mission here is to help move those into more um, commercial and clinical outcomes, right? Moving ideas into products so that we're able to reduce the disease burden on individuals and a society, as well as their, you know, an economic benefit for the state in doing so. And so I think, you know, there's, there's, there are great universities here. Uh, we, we have access to some great infrastructure and Maryland's really, to me, just like you said, you've been in California. I've been, I've been trained in Maryland since two, since 2010, I suppose, at, at several of these different institutes. And so it's very, very close to my heart um, to be able to now build this community and give back in a way to help move the needle in this space. So yeah, talking about CERM uh, for a minute, it's like a huge amount of money right billions um over many years of course and it also has like all that mojo of the silicon valley and biotech west coast entrepreneurship etc but you said it mscrf is a neighbor to the largest biomedical funding institute in the universe in the nih right do you think that this geographical proximity has any benefit? You know, all politics are local. Is there any kind of like loca locality to science, any kind of neighborhood effect there? Specifically, maybe in this case, is there overlap which can help navigate the regulatory process? I mean, ultimately, the pitch has to go to the, you know, to the government for to get all these things in the people. Do, is there any any? assist you think there and being so close to the this governmental apparatus yeah i suppose i should have also said in the previous one it is access to people and talent right so there is a lot of that in this region and part of that is um i think the tremendous infrastructure and you know the sheer number of um, phds we have in the area whether it's it's from federal or university or companies so I, th I think that there's been definite benefits. Um, you know, for me personally, I, I, I actually trained at NIH before um, um, at one point in my career. And I think that there is a lot of overlap and things to collaborate on. And you actually, in our ISSER session, you'll even find folks from NIH part of our panel. 
Um, so there is a lot of collaboration. There's a lot of, you know, scientific overlap. There is, um, we, and we're a lot, you know, we support, while we can't support research in federal labs, we, we support companies in the area. So these could come out of federal uh, research um, as well. And I think, I think that there has been tremendous opportunity to, to move this field forward be, just because of the infrastructure that's been created here, both federal, but, but also, you know, if you look at like larger companies that were involved in, you know, stem cell manufacturing and things like that, like the bigger players like Thermo Alonzo, who, who all had presence here. And now more recently, you, you find companies like Kite building our manufacturing facilities here. Um, and so I think it's, it's, a, it's a mix of everything. So, you know, bigger companies, I think, are also attracted to the region because of the presence of the federal labs and proximity to these various, um, you know, regulatory experts and so on. And I think that that sort of created this ecosystem where we're able to move the needle a little bit faster um, in, in our space. I think it's really cool that, like you mentioned, you yourself are a byproduct of this ecosystem, right? You were trained at the NIH, you've been training at some of these institutions. So it's cool to see, you know, somebody who's been in, grown in this environment to be at the leader of uh, the MSCRF. That's very cool. And so I did actually want to take a moment to talk about you specifically and your training and some of your accolades. You're actually recently selected as one of the Daily Records 2020 leading women honorees. So congratulations for that. Um, we wanted to kind of recognize you for your contributions to our field. And I think it's especially important to mention your unique position as a stem cell biology leader who is an immigrant woman of color. And so you are a symbol of progress, whether you like it or not. Um, could you reflect on the importance of representation of women and minorities in stem cell research and who your own role models and inspirations have been? Thank you for this question. And I'll do my best to answer. Um, representation is so important because other, otherwise some voices are never heard and some stories are never told. And it's not just the right thing to do, it's good economics to give everyone a voice. Uh, people should really realize that when we limit others from exercising their best selves and talents, really we all lose. Um, and, you know, look, I've had a pretty long and challenging journey and it's still a struggle, but I hope that I've been able to pave the way a bit more for those behind me on this path. Um, I just think it's so important to give everyone an opportunity and it's something I've had to constantly work hard for, but it's made me stronger. And now that, you know, I have a platform to do so, I can advocate for others and make sure that I give other scientists the opportunity to be heard. I mean, I'm happy to share my story here since it might help some of the trainees. Um, so I grew up in the southern part of India where I did my early schooling and I've been interested in science for as long as I can remember. I chose to major in biology early on. And by the time I graduated high school, I knew I was going to be a scientist because I was really fascinated by the complexity of the human body and diseases. But, you know, it was just such a different landscape then. And there weren't many people like me I could look to to figure all of this out and to figure out this path. Um, so my first degree was actually in zoology. And looking back, it was one of the best ways to study development in stem cell biology. But I was always interested in understanding the genetic basis of diseases and gene therapy. So I went to England to gain some hands-on experience in the field. I got a master's degree in genetics. And this was at the institute where they discovered DNA fingerprinting. So that was pretty fun. 
But nights and weekends, like many international students need to do, I worked at everything from a sandwich factory, a movie theater, library, dorms, just so many jobs to be able to live and study in another country. Um, and then I worked in a yeast lab, a cancer lab, and then moved here for a PhD, which is when I first started working with stem cells. Um, and this was also around the time that induced pluribone stem cells came on the scene, so I was working with those as well. And my work there led me to the NIH, where I started my postdoctoral work with Ron Mackay in the stem cell neuroscience genetic space, where I was studying normal and pathological brain development using pluripotent stem cells. So this gave me an opportunity to be a founding member of a nonprofit institute at Hopkins, where I worked in collaboration with various industry partners to advance treatments for neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, and that gave me a platform to then make contributions beyond research and have a broader impact more at the intersection of science and business, but also, you know, take a, you know, have a take a shot at communication, business development, operations, strategy, which I truly enjoyed. But I was still drawn to patient-oriented, mission-focused work, and I really wanted to have a broader impact on the regenerative medicine field and move the needle and build something bigger. So in 2016, I joined the MSCRF to spearhead an accelerating cures initiative, and I've been here since. So, you know, I, I've really been committed and dedicated to science my entire life, I guess, specifically in the stem cell space for the last 18 years. But it's been quite a journey, and I'm very thankful to the people who gave me an opportunity along the way. And I think for me, I found what inspires me, which is the science, my community of scientists and patients. And I dig deep each day to rise above the challenges. And I'm glad that my current role allows me to invest in and empower other scientists and the important work that we collectively do. It's just so important to have an opportunity to have a voice and give talented people an opportunity so they can go ahead and make a difference in the lives of others. And I hope we're on that path. Yeah, so it's been a, a long journey, as you said, but I think an inspiring one. And I mean, I'll say it, there's a long, long way to go before I think we have representation that's adequate, you know, where everyone can see themselves in someone else who's already at the pinnacle of achievement. And I mean, it's great to see that you all, I mean, from, you know, wherever you came from to wherever you are, it's been a long, long way, but I think um, you've, you've, you know, been a guiding light to a lot of people. Though. So congratulations. Uh, and thank you for sharing that journey with us. I think uh, we're going to finish now with just a little bit of science peripheral questions. Um, because, you know, you've done so much. I'd like to know what more could there be? The first question we have there along those lines is, um, what is one hobby that you always wanted to pursue, but were never able to in between all that, you know, globetrotting and sciencing? Yeah, I, um, I, I wish I had learned to play a musical instrument. You know, it wasn't something that I had access to as a child. Um, and, you know, neurons don't work the same when you're an adult. So um, and, and I feel like it's just one of these things that requires the same creativity and commitment that science does. And I've just not have I've just not made the time for it. But I really wish I could have, um, you know, I still have a guitar sitting here, but music and dance are just such a huge part of my life. Um, and I guess I, you know, I enjoy it, even though I don't know to play an instrument myself. So um, I wish I wish I could have learned it. Well, 
you're not uh, alone there. I, I could tell you my co-host got a guitar sitting somewhere in that room and there you're inspiring <laughs> him. And maybe the two of you guys can, can jam. I'll just get off the call. Uh, finally, <laughs> if you were not a scientist and executive director, what would you be? You know, I, I since you mentioned globe trotting, now I kind of just feel like it has to be something around travel, or you know, it's probably going to be something around travel or food for me. Um, since you know, I'm clearly not a musician, as we've established. <laughs> um, but you know, we were actually just talking about it over dinner at a conference the other day, and I suppose I could be a chef. Um, you know, it's I feel like cooking so much like science, and and I you know I really do enjoy it and. It's my my um, first boss, who who was my master's thesis advisor. You know, he he always used to say, um, whether you're a molecular biologist or a biochemist depends on whether you like to cook or bake. Um, and I, you know, it, it it always stuck with me. And I think it's just it just it's true because I'm definitely a molecular biologist. I you know like to create, refine, and experiment with things. So yeah, maybe maybe a chef or maybe like. Um, food critic or one of these travel bloggers. I don't know. I, I feel like when I was younger, my family thought I was just going to quit school and go be a sports commentator. But, you know, who knows? We spent so much time doing, doing science. I don't know that I've really thought about anything else, but could be a few things. Well, you've done a lot. And, uh, you know, best of all, you've shared with us what you got cooking there at MSCRF. So we appreciate that and uh, all that you do. Amrita, thank you again for joining us for this episode. It's really been delightful. Thanks so much. All right, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. We're real close to the ISSCR, guys. I'm hoping to see the, the people that we presented today, all those overlords at the conference and get some of their feedback. Also hoping to see some of you guys. Keep listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.